Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. I'm here with American linguist William Watts. He's written 17 books and over two dozen articles, many on the subject of writing in clear language and plain English. He co-authored the SEC's Plain English Handbook, is a professor emeritus at Rutgers, and an expert on all things fine print. It is my pleasure to have him with me on this podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Bill, you spent the better part of your career promoting the clear use of language, arguing, if we say what we mean, we'll all be better off. And I could see how that could be the case for you and me, but I can also see a clear motive for banks and insurance companies to deliberately be ambiguous in their language to mislead people uh, with, with the motive of profits. How might the clear use of language improve the prospects of financial services organizations? Um. The uh, clear language is, is essential so that both parties understand exactly what it is that they're agreeing to. Uh, in any contract that you enter into, you have to understand what your obligations and rights are under the terms of that contract. If one party, particularly the party writing the contract, writes it in such a way that the other party thinks they understand what their uh, obligations are, but in reality, um, they don't, and in fact, um, they may be entering into something that, if they truly understood it, they wouldn't do it. Um, one thinks immediately of some of those credit card contracts. Uh, then we've got a, an imbalance here. Now, in, in terms of the person who's, who's entering into that contract, um, they, they may pay a price, financial or otherwise, but the companies have an unfair advantage here, and they're, and they're not really dealing um, well, let's put it bluntly, honestly, uh, in, in the marketplace when, when they engage in this. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of that that goes on. Now, George Orwell coined the phrase doublespeak in his book 1984, which was actually first published in 1949, and you've written that the use of doublespeak is on the rise. What factors are contributing to the growth of doublespeak? Um, it, it, you know, um, once upon a time, when I was asked if, if it was increasing, uh, I used to say I really didn't know. But after dealing with the subject for about uh, t over 20 years, um, and I had voluminous uh, amounts of examples that kept growing, I suddenly discovered, yes, indeed, it was growing. And it was growing because um, of what Orwell predicted in, in his novel uh, and what he wrote about. And that is you can get away with a lot of things in language. And as um, politicians and those in business and others discovered this, um, we even have a profession now. After all, we talk about spin, and it's all right to be a spin doctor. But what are we really saying about a spin doctor? Spin doctor sits there and says, oh, no, 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 you didn't hear what you thought you heard. Let me tell you what you really heard, and then proceeds to put a spin on it. Uh, and the spin turns out to be something entirely different from what was said or what was written or whatever. This has now become a profession. Um, you can get away with things using just words. Why not? And it's become, unfortunately, something of a growth industry. 
Now, you've gone as far to say that uh, doublespeak is dangerous to the United States. What exactly are we in danger of? Well, it, 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 it's a danger um, to us as individuals, but it's also a danger to us as a nation because we don't really understand what it is we're talking about or what it is we're getting into. Um, as individuals, as, as I said previously, if you're entering into a credit card contract, buying a home, I mean, how many people thought they understood the mortgages they were getting only to find out that they didn't realize what they were getting and were, were getting something entirely different? So, you know, to the individuals, that's clearly a danger. Um, as a nation, we, as a democracy, debate and discuss issues of public importance, and then people make up their minds and make their decisions um, based on this public dialogue and discussion. If this dialogue, if this public discussion is um, carried out in doublespeak so that people aren't communicating with each other uh, and are indeed maybe even deliberately misleading each other so that people don't really know what's going on. They think they do, but they don't. Then we as a nation, as a, demo uh, as a democracy, engaged in public discourse to make uh, decisions of social impact and importance we're making them on a wrong basis, on a false basis, and that can only lead to harm in the country. Now, you break down doublespeak into different categories. What are they, and how can we tell them apart? Well, um, I, I broke it down simply because um, doublespeak is a matter really of intent. Um, you can identify doublespeak by uh, the, the simple expedient of, saying, of looking at who is saying what to whom, under what condition and circumstances, with what intent, and with what results. That becomes, um, you know, it's sort of a yardstick for measuring, or it, it, becomes, it becomes a test. So um, it, the reason it's, it's termed the conditions, if a politician stands up and speaks to you, and the politician says, I am giving you exactly what I think, you know, um, I believe, and this is what we need to do, and engages, and then turns around and does something exactly the opposite. Well, you know, you've got a pretty good yardstick, you know. Uh, she was pretending to tell me something, um, and turned out it wasn't um, what she meant at all. It meant something different. So that is um, the yardstick. Now, the first kind of doublespeak, and this is an ascending scale, is um, what we would call the, um, the euphemism. That's when we, um, we want to talk about something, but because of social conventions, um, we don't use direct language, we use indirect language. Um, you don't go up to someone and say, I'm sorry your mother died. You say, I'm sorry for your loss, your mother passed away. Um, but nobody is being misled there. In fact, it's a mark of your concern for the feelings of the other person that you use that euphemism. However... When you start using a euphemism because you want to avoid the harsh reality, um, then, then you're engaged in doublespeak. For example, uh, the State Department invented the euphemistic doublespeak term, unlawful or arbitrary detention uh, or unlawful or arbitrary uh, deprivation of life. Um, that's a phrase that's used to mean that the government was busy killing its own citizens without benefit of trial or any other legal nicety. So that's a euphemism that moves into doublespeak. Um, a second kind is jargon. We all know jargon. Everybody has their jargon. Doctors, lawyers, carpenters, um, bricklayers, everybody has their jargon. Um, but in the workplace, used by the workers, that's fine. 
um, because everybody understands it. So when my bricklayer said, um, we're going to put soldiers on that step, um, I didn't know what he was talking about until he explains it's a way of laying the bricks so that they're standing up straight. Okay, no problem. However, when you take jargon and you use it to mislead or obscure with someone who you've got a pretty good idea, doesn't know the, the jargon, ah, then we've moved into doublespeak. So, for example, um, my classic example is involuntary conversion, legal term. It means the loss of use of, of your property through fire, theft, or public condemnation. If your car is stolen, legally that's an involuntary conversion of your property. However, when you talk, as one airline did, about the involunta involuntary conversion of a 737, meaning that the plane crashed, um, then, okay, we've moved into um, using jargon as, as doublespeak. And then, of course, there's bureaucraties, gobbledygook, the kind that most people think, where we just pile words upon words upon words, um, and nobody can figure out what you're saying. I think the classic master of that was Alan Greenspan. Um, and I, I used to listen to his testimony before Congress, just so impressed with his use of, of economic jargon, doublespeak, gobbledygook, um, and it all sounded so impressive, didn't it? But it didn't mean anything that we, anybody could figure out. And the fourth is inflated language, um, trying to make something impressive, important, that really isn't. Um, used cars are now pre-owned or even experienced cars. Um, we have pre-viewed uh, DVDs, meaning they're used. Uh, the doorman on a building is an access controller. Um, it goes on and on, but the all-time favorite was pre-dawn vertical insertion, a phrase used by the uh, Pentagon to describe the invasion of Grenada. So you can see where it's all over the place. On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, Social Media Editor of the New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyak, Analyst and Partner at the Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit ontherecordpodcast.com for the promo code before you register. How does the use of doublespeak over time impact our tolerance threshold for the misuse of language? Well, what, uh, it's interesting because um, people seem to think, uh, and what, what I discovered is that people are really very good at spotting this language, by the way. Um, when I edited the quarterly review of Doublespeak, I was inundated, and I mean that literally. I was flooded with clippings and examples that people would send to me. So they knew well what is going on. However, we don't take language as seriously as we should because it is extremely important. And the uh, constant use of doublespeak does sort of harden us. I mean, we come to expect that kind of language, which is unfortunate because we shouldn't. We should demand honesty. Uh, a, a rough comparison would be um, uh, air quality 
As long as the air is good and clean, um, nobody pays much attention to it or is really, really concerned about it. But just as soon as you get heavy pollution, smog, um, um, health alerts, people dying from it, well, then all of a sudden everybody becomes concerned about the quality of air that we have to breathe. We should have the same concern about the quality of language that is used in, in public discourse. Um, we should not say, well, oh, of course, what more can you expect? You know, that's, they all talk like that, et cetera. No, um, we shouldn't. Uh, my example is if someone <clears throat> uses, um, particularly someone in business or in politics or uh, public language that um, we d say this is double speak. You're not. You're not speaking clearly. You're not saying it. Um, in fact, you're insulting my intelligence by using this language. I think we have two choices. One, I, I like a lot, is to start laughing at them and saying you can't be serious. I mean, that is so ridiculous for someone to use that language. It's very funny. Um, the second approach is to do what we do whenever we have any defective product. We return it and we ask for our refund. So the next time a politician or someone uses such language, we should simply say, um, I'm sorry, I don't accept this language. You're going to have to come up something with a little bit better than that, and so rephrase it. In other words, we have to fight back. We have to stop being passive consumers of language. So, you know, you wrote this SEC handbook on the use of clear language. Um, you co-authored it, and it says, um, you know, financial disclosures have to be easy to understand, uh, and you clearly outline <clears throat> in, the, in the handbook how to achieve that with plain English. Uh, but if you think about what happened with Enron or Bernie Madoff, I guess they just lied with clear, concise English, right? I mean, can clarity somehow make it easier for us to figure out who's telling the truth? Well, yes, clarity will. And in fact, um, if you read the Enron uh, last uh, uh, 10K document that Enron filed with the SEC, which is still available on the, on the SEC's website, um, and you look at it, they worked very hard, particularly in the financial notes where they buried most of the bodies, to make it not understandable. And in fact, um, one of the uh, reporters from uh, Fortune magazine who had written an article on Enron uh, before uh, the collapse, uh, said that um, when they read the, the, the 10K, they, they were just, and both of the reporters, by the way, had, had MBAs, um, they said they simply could not understand it. So they went around to financial analysts whose job it was to follow, follow Enron uh, and, you know, evaluate it and make recommendations whether people should buy the stock or not. They could not find one person, not one, who understood and could explain the uh, Enron financial statement. It was not written in plain English. It was written in uh, financial, economic, jargon, bureaucraties, gobbledygook, um, and it was done, as we, of course, discovered later, deliberately to mislead and hide what was going on. Because if you write it in plain English, if you write it even so it's moderately understandable, um, and if people were to read it and say, oh, I've got some questions about this, are you saying that, you're, that instead of having a profit, you're running a multi-billion dollar loss? Well, you don't want that to happen. Um, but the other thing that happens is when you do go belly up, the government now can, if you've lied, can now prosecute you for fraud. So the folks at Enron really had to 
write language that they could say, oh, it's really here, you just don't understand it, because it was their only defense against fraud. So by mandating, um, you know, plain language, that is plain enough so that the reasonably intelligent investor can understand it, it, it seems to me puts a strong legal um, uh, restriction on people who try or would like to, uh, to, to uh, attempt fraud. More on clear and concise language with American linguist William Lutz after this. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that On the Record Online continuously delivers useful information that increases your professional value to your employer or your clients. And you also know the podcast is and always has been 100% free, delivered as a service to the community. And now... For the first time, I'm asking you for something in return. Your opinion. I want to know what you think about this podcast. Log on to www.ontherecordpodcast.com and take the listener survey. Over the past five years, I've given you 200 hours of compelling programming. And now I'm asking you to please give me five minutes of your time in return. Go to www.ontherecordpodcast.com and take the listener survey today. Uh, Bill, email marketers are notorious for using double, even triple negatives in opt-out screens. What, if anything, can people do to get them to change these practices? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to fight back. That is, um, tear it up, throw it away. Or, uh, as a friend of mine likes to do, when it includes the, the you know, postage reply envelope, um, she takes the uh, uh, uncompleted form, tears off her address, puts in the envelope, and mails it back uh, so that they have to pay the postage, but they get nothing for it as a sign of protest. Just think if people did that. Now, um, mass marketers, uh, or the direct mail business, as they like to call it, um, isn't that nice, uh, doublespeak, um, they, uh, they plan on a 1% to a maximum 3% return on any mailing. What if 5% of the people were sending back the um, uncompleted forms, but they had to pay the postage on getting those back as a form of protest against um, language that people felt was uh, um, deceptive, misleading, uh, or too difficult to understand. Don't you think that would give them a financial incentive to change their ways? I do, I do. But what about email marketers? Well, that's why God made a delete key. Um, and that's why you want the unsubscribe key. Or one of the other uh, uh, devices, I picked this up a little bit late myself, uh, and I learned it from others. What I do is I have um, you know, multiple email addresses, and I have one that I use just for my shopping um, and online, any kind of online um, shopping or anything like that, so that I can always ask to be unsubscribed from that email. It doesn't contaminate my others. And every once in a while, you just, you know, kill that email and create a new one. Um, it's unfortunate that you have to do that, but until we come up with um, a better system for fighting back, it's about the best you can do. Remember, um, emailers, particularly the, the, the emailers who spam us, do that only because there are people who respond. 
as soon as people stop responding, then they have to figure out something new. Social media is challenging organizations worldwide to rethink and update their human resource materials and codes of conduct. Uh, But such policies often require uh, the use of new vocabulary and terms specific to online conversations and social networking. What advice do you have for organizations and individuals tasked with creating social media guidelines for organizations? Um, Let me begin with with two pieces of information. One, uh, I am an attorney also. And two, I have actually worked on, uh, with corporations on crafting such policies. And there's a real conflict there. As an attorney, I take one view of this, and it is a very, very, very conservative view, given the potential for harm um, in social media, online social media. And, uh, but on the other hand, um, I recognize that you, you can't stop the, the technology that is simply overwhelming all of us and rolling forward. We, we simply have to figure out a way to work with it. Uh, it is interesting to note that even the Securities and Exchange Commission in Washington, D.C., um, does also now have uh, policies in place for um, you know, Twittering, blogging, etc. And, in fact, while I was there, um, the then chairman, um, Chris Cox of the SEC, did a um, press conference at which he accepted questions um, on Twitter. So uh, I think it's a recognition by all of us that we have to craft these policies. However, um, and I don't want to go into too much detail. We really don't have time for that. You have to make a clear distinction and explain to employees that w- when they Twitter um, either from work or even from home, if there's any suggestion that they are speaking as employees of the company, um, they have to be very careful because uh, they are now bringing down onto the company um, all of that responsibility. So it is a difficult problem because it is the paradox of communication, and that is as we move into an era of of you know the twittering, the blogging, all of the uh, the social networking, particularly as it now migrates onto our our cell phones, our handheld devices, so that we are wired 24/7 wherever we are. Um, I don't think any of us has figured out what the true impact of all this is going to be. I do think the wrong position is to say no. Um, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to work. Um, you know, it brings to mind the boy and the dyke and everything else, only this time I think the dyke could win. So um, I, I guess my advice is that there have, first of all, there have to be policies in place if you work in any kind of an organization. Um, to, uh, j- even if you don't um, do it officially, you have to tell employees whether or not uh, what they can do on the job and they can't do. Two, if you do have um, blogging, twittering, etc., as part of the social networking of the company, that is, the company wants to do this, then there have to be very clear, specific guidelines. And if ever there was a need for plain language, that is the time, let me tell you, so that employees may understand very clearly what it is they can and cannot do. More with American linguist William Lutz after this. 
The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. Uh, Bill, you said that uh, the potential for harm with social media communications, uh, an employer using social media communication, I- I'm sorry, an employee using social media communications could, 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 could harm an employer. What exactly is that potential? Can, can you talk about that a little? Yes, in fact, um, I'm, I can tell you of a couple cases that actually happened where employees in, you know, how casual we are about Twittering and how casual we are with our email, who uh, in one instance, the employee, without realizing it, gave out proprietary information and just sent it out into that electronic world out there. Um, and that's a serious problem. I mean, that's internal um, communication. In this instance, it was the, for, the upcoming earnings report um, that uh, the employee knew something about and just happened to mention in passing uh, to a friend something along the lines, oh, you know, this is good news. Well, yeah, it's good news, and it's also breaking the law for that information to be out there, so that caused some problems. Other instances, not uncommon, um, are employees... Um, berating the company or complaining about the company and and I don't mean the uh, little gripes I mean serious um, charges uh, against the employer whether true or not they're you know they're out there and all of this can cause serious problems for the employer and certainly for the employee Uh, it's a matter of context Um, what has happened is that once upon a time, when we wrote a letter, we sat down at home and took out paper and pencil, or even if we used a typewriter, and there was a certain context in which we wrote certain kinds of documents or information, if you will. Um, now, there are no contexts. It is ubiquitous. Uh, one of the problems with email is that we can write personal or business um, messages and you know, one right after the other on the same device, and there's a tendency to forget that, whoops, um, you know, I just sent a business memo to colleagues, and now I'm writing a note to my wife, and we need to change registers in the kind of language we use and the kinds of things we can say and can't say. uh, One of the big complaints in the workplace is um, the over-familiarity that, happens unintentionally in business communications on the website because people forget they're at work and they um, need to speak and write differently. Uh, Given the rise of federal regulation over what some people and public companies disseminate using social media, um, do you think that Twitter uh, has become mainstream and stable enough uh, to be counted as an information dissemination tool for major corporations in lieu of expensive wire services. And yeah, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the tweet would point to the corporation's website where the, uh, you know, where the unabridged uh, disclosure was. That is a hot topic of discussion. And I, as I'm sure you're aware, it is a hot topic of discussion at the SEC. Um, from past um, uh, performance at the SEC, that is how they've addressed these issues, um, 
uh, the most recent of which, of course, in, in, that I'm familiar with over the years, has been the use of uh, the web to make disclosures. And for a long time, the SEC said no. And they said no because all of the research uh, demonstrated that um, it's what we call accessibility. I mean, how accessible was the web to um, how many people? And then um, secondly, uh, how widespread was it actually used? So I think right now with Twitter, that Twitter is uh, not as widely used as we like to think. Uh, remember, if you're talking about disseminating um, mand mandated uh, disclosure, whether it's financial disclosure by the SEC or anything else, um, how many people have access and, and actually use Twitter? Well, not on a percentage basis of the U.S. population, not that much. I know there's a lot of of messages sent, uh, but that doesn't mean that there's a lot of people who are online using it. So I think until you reach a bigger critical mass, I don't see that happening. The other thing I think that is interesting about Twitter is that it is still evolving. Um, I don't think it's reached it, it, it's, uh, the shape, its ultimate shape of uh, what it will be. I think um, that's still a work in progress, and for that reason also, uh, if, if I were a corporation, I might use uh, Twitter to a certain extent, but I certainly wouldn't rely on it as a major source of disseminating information. Would you rely on a company's website? Yes, and in fact, um, we're moving to that now, um, but there's a complication, and I've worked with a couple corporations on this issue, um, you know, the unintended consequences uh, of, of ideas. Uh, I, I'm always fascinated by it. One of the things is that a website, a corporation website does not exist uh, by itself. That is it's just the website. Remember, there are still printed documents that go out. There are legal documents that are filed with, with uh, government entities. Um, and all of these have to agree with each other. So what you write on your website has to correspond with what you write in your documents that you file with the SEC, with banking regulators, with environmental agencies, whatever. So you the, the, the issue of coordinating all of these um, dissemination sources is, is really challenging, and it's just uh, a, a brutal matter of document control and information control. And if anything, I think until we solve some of these issues, uh, uh, companies are going to be conservative in the number of outlets that they use simply because it, it demands so much work on their part to maintain all of them. And so they're going to um, restrict to just the ones that they see as most effective. Twitter allows us to send 140 character messages, and Facebook lets us update our status line. Um, given that these services uh, are thriving on the distribution of short, frequent updates of information, uh, and that it can be a real challenge to sandwich a complete thought into 140 characters. Uh, what advice do you have for people who want to use these services clearly and concisely? Um, first, one, think, think, think before you write. Um, don't send a message just for the sake of sending a message. Uh, that's one of the most common complaints you'll hear from people about getting um, – uh, you know, tweets that just don't contribute anything. To tell you the truth, I'm, I've logged off of Twitter. I've 
put my account in suspension because I would say that at least um, 90% of the messages I was receiving, uh, were, there was nothing there. There was no content there. There was, and, and by the way, there are friends who were just, you know, writing me those little inane things that were fun and funny, and those I didn't mind. But I got an awful lot of them from from serious accounts that, you know, when I looked at them, because I, I looked at the, at the inbox and said, wow, I have to read that. And then I said, why are they sending me this? It, it got to be a huge waste of time. So send it only when you've got something substantive and important to say. Two, think about how you want to say it. Three, has it ever occurred to anybody that because of that character limit, maybe you want to send two tweets in a row um, to more fully express your thought? Uh, I think that there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, in fact, handled properly, it will give more emphasis to the message and make people want to read it more. Um, but brevity, you know the old cliche, um, if you want me to give a two-hour speech, I'm ready to go. If you want a 20-minute speech, give me a week. Um, always remember that. It is extremely difficult. I used to, in teaching, require my students um, each week to write a two-page um, essay uh, on the uh, assigned reading, and they quickly discovered just how difficult it was to do that until I finally told them, look, I mean, the secret to writing two pages is you write five to six and cut back. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening with uh, Twitter. Bill, I'll be interviewing a gentleman by the name of Shell Israel. Uh, in the uh, in the coming week um, about a book he wrote called Twitterville, uh, which was a fascinating read, and I think you might enjoy that uh, interview when it is released. Oh, I look forward to it, yeah. And I want to thank you for taking the time to appear on this podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It was delightful. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.